everyone. Welcome to Strong Mind, Strong Body. I'm your host, Angie Miller, and today we are going to talk about psychedelic-assisted therapy. I don't know about you, but I've read and heard so much more in mainstream media about psychedelic-assisted therapy, and I've also heard about it in the space where I exist, which is as a psychotherapist. So recently, I went to a mental health convention where I spoke, and I listened to my guest today who brought us psychedelic assisted therapy at that convention. And I went up to him and I said, I have to have you on my podcast because I feel like this is such profound information on the way that psychedelics are going to impact our world of mental health and wellness. And it's not just obviously in the mainstream media, it has a long, long history of research. So I would like to invite Dr. Raymond Turpin to come in. He is the clinical director of Pearl Institute right here in North Carolina. So Dr. Turpin, I'm going to bring you in and have you introduce yourself. Okay. I'm Dr. Raymond Turpin, and I am a clinical psychologist located in Waynesville, North Carolina. Uh, I have a private practice here in Waynesville, and I'm also the executive director and the clinical director of the Pearl Psychedelic Institute, which is a nonprofit, 501c3. And we are dedicated here to continuing to try to research psychedelic-assisted therapies. Um, currently, we are uh, working with MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, as well as using uh, ketamine for a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And uh, we are also focused on community education, and we are also working on establishing a low-cost clinic so that people can access these treatments um, in an affordable, accessible way. I think that is beyond amazing because I know that the one, to me, the one I hear about the most is psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And that could be because um, I'm not promoting a show here, but there was that show on TV called Nine Perfect Strangers and they were microdosing. And, and mm -hmm. then there's a Netflix special um, that I've watched about just basically psychedelics and the role of them. And if I understand correctly, you know, they were really researched in the 50s and 60s. And then like in the 70s, they kind of got into the counterculture. And then basically the federal government criminalized all of the research and everything came to a halt. And now it's back in. So do you want to give us your much more educated version of how that took place? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, none of these compounds that are being talked about and researched and being used for therapy, none of them are new, really. Um, the ones that are being really heavily researched right now, psilocybin and uh, MDMA and uh, ketamine, which is currently legal, a schedule three medication. Um, and then there's others that are being researched, such as Ibogaine. Um, none of these are new compounds. Uh, MDMA was first synthesized in 1912, and the patent was uh, awarded in 1914. So its long patent is long expired. Psilocybin, which is the uh, psychoactive ingredient in what's called magic mushrooms or psychedelic mushrooms, those there's evidence that those have been used for six to ten thousand years by indigenous people, uh, particularly in Central South America, Siberia. Uh, so they have a long history of being used and um, LSD, which was one that was uh, studied extensively in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, that one was uh, invented in 1938, uh, Albert Hoffman. So um, none of these and even ketamine was uh, first invented in 1962 by um, 
a chemist that was uh, working for uh, Park Davis Pharmaceuticals. So none of these compounds are especially new. And um, with uh, psilocybin, for example, that's the one that you are, that you mentioned that you're hearing a lot about. Uh, there is a lot of different research going on with that right now. Um, it's been around again, like I said, there's been uh, mushroom stones that have been unearthed from about 10,000 years ago that uh, demonstrate that humans were worshiping or using these substances for rites of passage, for healing, for divination. Um, so there's a long history of those being used in humanity. And, uh, you know, it came around to where uh, there was a banker named R. Gordon Wasson in the 50s who took an interest in mushrooms and uh, psychedelic mushrooms. And he had heard about there being this mushroom cult that was still in existence, even though the Spanish had worked very hard to uh, shut down all of that when they came over to colonize. But this sort of underground cult had survived. And so in the 50s, he went down there and was introduced to uh, Maria Sabina, who was a uh, curandera. And so he got to sit in on a ceremony and then he got to partake in a ceremony, came back, wrote a very famous article on psilocybin mushrooms that ended up in the May 1957 edition of Life magazine. And so that started this huge interest in psilocybin and hippies and all kinds of seekers ended up going down to Mexico. Timothy Leary ended up taking uh, psilocybin in 1960. Uh, he said he learned more about the brain in six hours than he did in his previous 25 years of professional training and experience. And so Harvard gave him permission to start studying that. And so there was a whole uh, opening of research with psilocybin in the 60s, and uh, it was shut down uh, by about 1970. All the psilocybin work around the world was shut down. And uh, it sort of came back open. There was a guy named Francisco Moreno in 1996 that did a very small study looking at psilocybin to treat obsessive compulsive disorder. And then since then, uh, I'd say over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, it's really taken off. And um, they have found that it has potential utility for treating some very previous refractory conditions that weren't responding to conventional treatments, things like uh, treatment resistant depression. Um, people that have end of life anxiety, they have existential anxiety about their impending death, they're terminally ill, they might have six months to a year to live, and uh, they're stuck and they're feeling afraid about their impending death. Uh, there's been an enormous uh, uh, changes that we've seen in those patients from taking even one dose of psilocybin under controlled clinical conditions. It's also been shown to be potentially effective for cocaine cessation, uh, nicotine addiction, um, again, there's a study out right now looking at it for obsessive compulsive disorder. So this one is really, it's a very old one that uh, is starting to come back around and that we're finding some utility for. Um, MDMA, which is... Uh, Can I interject here? So yeah. I, I want to go back on the psilocybin because I'm really glad like that was actually, I don't know how your brain holds on to all of that history, but I guess it's because you have been so immersed in this and this is obviously your area of expertise and what you do but when you talk about psilocybin and and yeah I, I was reading about john hopkins and all the research that's going on there and how basically it, when i think about any type of psychedelic assisted therapy from my standpoint or i guess my my layman's terms of describing it is that one of the concerns with talk therapy all along has been the use of language mm -hmm. and that not everyone has access to language 
to be able to express their thoughts and feelings. And that in cases of severe trauma, you actually suppress those experiences. And, and so the idea of psychedelics is that it takes away the, not necessarily takes away the talk therapy, but it supplements it by taking down defenses, if you will, and allowing us not to get caught in those verbal or mental traps Mm -hmm. And and kind of allows us to access areas of the brain that we can't mm -hmm. if we're not under the influence of psychedelic assisted therapy. Did I, is that a layman's way of explaining it or? Yeah, I think a good way to explain the idea behind psychedelic assisted therapy is I think for the last, uh, you know, hundred years or so, psychiatry and psychiatric medications have been about um, dampening down symptoms or controlling symptoms so that people can get out and function. That's been the general way that we've gone about treating mental illness. And in therapy, we end up having to take what's called kind of a top-down approach where we do use language and we're talking about people's problems and we're trying to address their symptoms. We're trying to look for the underlying causes from this top-down approach. And I think the unique approach that psychedelic-assisted therapy offers us is that psychedelics have a way of going underneath all of the symptoms and they go down to really, they're able to allow us to access the root causes in a nonverbal way. Um, I would say I've been a psychologist for many years. I've been in mental health for probably 30 years at this point. And I'd say about 10 years ago, I realized that about 80 to 90% of everything I've ever treated or any clinical case I've ever supervised, regardless of the diagnosis, when you trace back the beginning of the person's problems, it is typically related to some type of poorly integrated traumatic experience or traumatic experiences. And so one of the things that these compounds allows us to do is it allows us to go underneath the symptoms and go right to try to treat the underlying causes of these mental health issues, which is a very different way of treating mental health. Instead of going after the symptoms to mitigate symptoms so people can function, the idea is to go underneath the symptoms and find what's causing the symptoms? What is the person having to compensate for that's creating these mental health issues? And so that's one of the things that I think is the huge difference that psychedelic assisted therapy is bringing us. And, and yes, in the context of psychedelic assisted therapy, patients are laying down usually with eye shades on and headphones, listening to instrumental music. And it's really an internal process that the patient's going through on their own. The therapists are there to provide safety and a sense of containment to be held. They're there to provide support if the patient needs it. But it's this idea too, that, uh, that every Everybody has what's called an inner healing intelligence and that we all know what our bodies and our brains know what we need to heal. And one of the things that these compounds are so good at is that they go in, they get the ego out of the way. You don't have to engage really verbally in these things. And you go in and you have these deep internal experiences where you're basically following the medicine and trusting that the medicine is bringing up whatever the patient needs to be confronting. And so what we try to prepare patients to do for this kind of work is to just trust the medicine trust their own inner healing intelligence and to follow the medicine and let it bring up what it needs to bring up and then to be with and experience what it brings up. And that tends to be what we see as the healing mechanism. So I, I, I like that, you know, the inner healing intelligence and mm -hmm. letting go of the ego. And, and I guess that's a, that's a perfect way of describing that 
we don't have to access language. We can access something deeper mm -hmm. and access, like you said, so much of our concerns in life end up being related to maybe one traumatic event that we can't mm -hmm. really access. We've suppressed it or different experiences have happened and doing the psychedelic assisted therapy can, can actually um, get us where we need to be in a more profound way. Mm -hmm. So my question is, if you go back to psilocybin, if I understand it right, I know John Hopkins is doing the research and I do want to reintroduce you, by the way, I'm talking to Dr. Raymond Turbin, Turbin and he is Turpin. Good Lord. I'm sorry. That's okay. He is the, um, he is the clinical director of Pearl Psychedelic Institute. And I'm so glad you joined us here for Strong Mind, Strong Body, because we're talking about psychedelic assisted therapy, which happens to be one of the topics that I'm most fascinated by. But if you go back to the psilocybin, you know, it's it's over. It's all over. I mean, I, I know there are some states now who've legalized mushrooms and you hear a lot about people microdosing. And I think that's why we hear about it the most. And so but I know you also want to talk about MDMA and ketamine. But before we move on to those in, in regards to psilocybin, explain, could you just in layman's term, what is microdosing? <laughs> Microdosing is when people take a small dose of a psychedelic and it's small enough to where it's called, where it does not reach the perceptual threshold in the sense that you're not going to feel it necessarily. It's not going to cause any alterations in perception. It's not going to cause any of those classic symptoms that happen when you take a dose of a psychedelic. The idea is to take a small enough dose to where you really don't feel it. The idea is to, there's a lot of debate about, um, how much to take and how frequent there's people have different patterns for how to take it. I think the most common one is about every third day, somebody will take a small dose, but the idea is to take a dose that's small enough that you're not going to really feel it. It's not going to cause any alterations in perception. And then people that have done microdosing will generally uh, come back and say that they just felt that it helped their depression. It helped their anxiety. Uh, they might've felt more creative. They might've felt a little more uh, energy in their life. Uh, they might find that they have more patience with people. Um, there's a lot, the jury's out about it right now. They're just starting what I would consider to be formal research into microdosing because there's a question of how much is this is the placebo effect and how much of it is the actual uh, medication that you're taking. And so uh, I think some of the early results have come back very inconclusive that uh, not sure that it really does anything. But I know that when people have talked to me about microdosing, um, you know, I have found that it usually takes people a month or two of taking it before they really have an idea of what it might be doing for them. It's very subtle, um, but it's something that's been around for probably the last 25 years has been this microdosing. It kind of started in Silicon Valley, um, but it is where people take usually psilocybin or LSD are the two that we're seeing that people use for microdosing. But the idea is to take a very tiny dose so that you can't really feel it. And the idea is that it's doing this subtle influencing of your, uh, your functioning over okay. time. That was a perfect description. I really appreciate that. So mm -hmm. my question is, my last question on psilocybin mm -hmm. is, yes, people have access to it. They're microdosing. Um, for someone like me who might want to know the impact of psilocybin in, in releasing past experiences or stored whatever trauma it might be, is there a way for the everyday population to do or to get access to psilocybin in psychedelic assisted therapy, or is it only being used right now with PTSD or 
what is the overall use in clinical settings at this point? Well, right now it's still a schedule one drug, which means it's very difficult to research or have access to. So unless you are participating in a formal research uh, project that's taken place, or if you happen to live in a state uh, such as Oregon, where they have actively decriminalized it and they're working on the rules for people to be able to legally use it in therapy, um, it's hard to access. Um, you're going to have to find somebody, usually an underground therapist, somebody that's practicing with it illegally. Um, and that's always very sketchy because those folks have very, what I've found is they have varying levels of training, varying levels of integrity, uh, varying levels of what their motivations are. So it's very risky to try to access this treatment unless you're going through proper clinical supervision uh, through a research project. Or like I said, the state of Oregon is working on trying to set up a structure where therapists can legally use it um, there. But uh, yeah, otherwise, it's really hard to access currently because of its schedule one status. Well, and I'm glad you said that because you don't have to spend a lot of time on social media to see a lot of retreats right now. Oh, a yeah. lot of wellness retreats that are using psychedelic assisted therapy and, and I'm not yaying or naying. I just wanted you to give your input. And I thought that was very well, very well said. It's still a schedule on one drug. We still aren't sure. And some people are out there hosting these retreats and I don't know, they could be amazing. Maybe not. It's not for us to judge, but I wanted you to kind of tap into that a little bit because I definitely see it out there. Mm -hmm. So let's move to ketamine because mm -hmm. I know that you offer, I know this personally because I met you at the, at the mental health convention, you mm -hmm. offer um, retreat weekends for, for clinicians like me to try ketamine in a controlled environment and to learn more about what ketamine does. So tell us a little bit about ketamine. Mm -hmm. Ketamine is a schedule three medication, which means it's legal with a prescription. It's easier to research. Uh, it's easier to access than the schedule ones, of course. Ketamine was um, invented in 1962 by a guy named Calvin Stevens, and they were looking for a shorter acting they were looking for an anesthetic for surgery. They were using phencyclidine before and people were coming out with these prolonged kind of psychotic reactions. And so they wanted to find something that was similar, but that would uh, not have these kind of reactions. And so it's still used uh, in veterinary medicine. It's still used with children's surgery a lot. It's not used that much with adult surgery anymore. But what they found back in 1974, I think was the first uh, where it appeared in the literature where somebody was uh, had, a guy named Fontana had just had learned that uh, sub anesthetic doses of ketamine could have a fairly profound antidepressant effect when it's used in the context of psychotherapy. So it's not an it's not a very new idea that uh, ketamine can have these antidepressant effects, and uh, it is considered a non classic psychedelic, um, uh, and it tends to. It, it produces a, the way we use it is there's different routes of administration. There's a lot of uh, ketamine clinics that have popped up everywhere. And some of them are what we call pump and dump, where you just come in and they'll hook you up. There's no preparation. There's no support during the experience and there's no integration afterwards. And so people can have some profound relief from their depression symptoms, um, sometimes two, four, six weeks. But if you don't do the preparation and the support and more, more particularly the integration work, which is where you take your experience and you really try to figure out what did it mean and bringing it into your everyday life, the results will tend to go away. 
And so what we have found is that uh, we use trochees, which are like lozenges, and we also use uh, intramuscular injections. And what we're looking for is ketamine will create, it's a very safe drug. Uh, it plays well with lots of different medications. Lamictal, which is a, a mood stabilizer, is one that we have to make sure the patient doesn't take the day of. But usually it can be work, used very safely with other medications. And uh, what it does is it provides around a 40 to a 75 minute, um, very potentially strong psychedelic experience. So there's things going on in the brain with ketamine. Um, that really are helpful for things like depression and chronic pain. And then the, the information or the experiences that come up in the context of the psychedelic experience, they're, they're typically, it provides information from the deep self. And so if you can pay attention to the images, the insights, the sensations that may come up in the context of your ketamine work, these are often very important uh, bits of information that tell the patient about what they need to be focusing on in their lives, certain things they need to do more of, less of, things they need to focus on, uh, maybe reorder their priorities. And so I was not a big fan of it as much when we got started. I felt like it was kind of a poor man psilocybin, that it was the legal way to uh, access uh, psychedelics. But I think we've gotten much better at how to use it. And we put a lot of intention and time into the intake and into the preparation phases and then really really helping people integrate what happened in their experience. And so we're seeing people reporting some profound changes uh, when they have had years of stuckness and depression and anxiety um, or has helped with their PTSD. And it doesn't necessarily, I wouldn't say it really cures the PTSD, but it does help people formulate a different relationship with their PTSD that they found very helpful, um, unlike some of the other interventions that they've had. So I'm definitely more of a fan of it. Um, I'd say that research shows right now that about 70% of people that undergo ketamine therapy are what's called responders, that they get the benefits from it. And about 30% are what they call non-responders. Um, I feel like our statistics are a little better than that because of the attention we put into the preparation and the integration. But uh, certain things happen in the brain uh, that are really positive for depression, um, things that goes after different areas of the brains that SSRIs don't address. And okay. so people that have maybe not been able to respond to SSRIs will sometimes be able to respond to ketamine because the way it operates differently in the brain on different receptors. I have a question for you about the whole integration thing, which I think mm -hmm. is such a huge Again, that is what separates maybe these retreats or maybe people who aren't necessarily as educated and schooled in, in using these type of psychedelics in therapy. And I think the integration is the key piece because mm -hmm. you had mentioned that obviously when you're under the influence of something like ketamine stuff is going to come up. But if you don't have the integration, if you don't have somebody who is capable then of, of helping you make sense of what came up and also helping you process it and keeping you stable throughout that, it, that's that's where it is, is that's where you need true um, trained individuals who can help you with this. So one thing that came to my mind is if I'm doing that and you have given me the lozenge or the intramuscular uh, injection and stuff is coming up and the brain is, you know, processing all of these things that are coming up. Is the patient talking out loud to you? 
how are they going to remember it or what, or they just remember it. That's what fascinates me. Mm -hmm. We encourage, we encourage people during the experience, if they can verbalize anything, to let us know. Because recall sometimes is a little difficult. It's an anesthetic. It's a dissociative anesthetic. So sometimes people can have a little trouble recalling afterwards. So we encourage people to try to verbalize anything, even if it's just a word. You know, they may say something. And then what we do is uh, once the person is, once their ketamine experience is winding down, uh, they take off the eye shades, they take off the headphones. We usually have the lights very low and we give them plenty of time and just say, hey, relax. When you feel like talking, start talking to us and they'll start to report to us what they remember and we're taking notes. And then we will also go back and review. You know, at one point you said the word balloons and they'll be like, oh yeah, I was in this street in Italy walking down and there was balloons everywhere. So we usually have uh, some cues if they can report anything to help them. So what we do, the first thing when they come out of the ketamine is we're trying to reconstruct what do you remember from the experience? And then once we've sort of put together what they remember, Remember, we try to start tying those images and those insights back into their intentions or their clinical issues that they came in to work on. And so that's really when the integration starts is the minute they come out of the ketamine, we start to make sense of it. And, and then we follow up around two to four days later and have another integration session after they've had a few days to let it sink in. And we go back over what came up in their session and continue to sort of invite them to carry these images around with them during their everyday life, you know, bring it in and see what the what the meaning of it is. And that is the key piece to getting the most out of psychedelic assisted therapy is the integration part. I mean, psychedelics are not for everybody. There are certain contraindications for it. People with a history of psychosis, uh, certain diagnoses are not good for psychedelics. Um, but, uh, you know, if taking a psychedelic made everybody, you know, into Buddhas or more spiritually enlightened, our culture would be a lot farther along if that's all it took. But these things, all they do is give us access to our unconscious and areas of ourselves that we normally cannot access. And then it's what you do with those experiences and that information that makes all the difference. So integration is the key to getting the most out of any kind of psychedelic assisted therapy. Well, and I get... Yeah. I appreciate that because you're right. It's what you do with it. And, and to be honest, you had me at balloons in Italy. I was like, well, I'm going to carry around that image. That's sure. the image. So, you know, I, I, we have to get to MDMA because mm -hmm. I know that you have so much information on that as well. And, and for is MDMA Molly by street name? That's one of the slang names, ecstasy, Molly, Adam. So, yeah. There's several. Okay. So, yeah. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around the stuff that you hear, you know, not that I know the street names, but I know Molly was something that I, and I was trying to make the connection. So mm -hmm. I guess if you had to take MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, what's the big, what differentiates MDMA from those? I think, well, MDMA is, I think it's a, especially well suited for treating trauma and for treating PTSD. Uh, there was a period between 1976 and about 1986 where it was actually legal and people were using it. There's, by the time 1984 rolled around, which is where the crackdown started against it, um, once it started showing up in the rave scene, at that time it was estimated there was well over a thousand therapists using it legally in their, ther in their uh, treatment, in their practices. And so it was 
shown during that 10 year period that it could be very helpful for treating trauma as well as being very helpful for things like couples counseling and working through any kind of inter interrelational uh, problems that were happening. But the thing that makes um, MDMA so particularly effective, I think, potentially for treating trauma is what happens in the brain. And just I'm not going to go into all the details, but essentially one of the things that it does, one of the things that makes trauma treatment so difficult in, in conventional talk therapy is that when you get the patient to the place where they're starting to talk about their trauma, the brain goes into fight or flight. It's a protective mechanism that the brain goes into. And so patients have a hard time sitting with their trauma material and doing the work they have to do. I do a lot of EMDR in my private practice and that's still people have to deal with a lot of emotion that's coming through and it makes it very difficult to stay with that emotion to do the work they need to do for their trauma work. And one of the nice things among other things that MDMA does is it shuts down 95% these two structures in the brain that are called the amygdala. These are like the smoke alarms that trigger when they picture, when they realize there's threat in the environment, they're the things that fire that put us on fight or flight or freeze. And and so MDMA goes in there and shuts down the amygdala 95%. And when that happens, that allows trauma memories to emerge. And because our fight or flight is not automatically kicking in, the patient's able to actually be with the trauma and do the work that they need to do. The other thing that we find that happens in the brain with MDMA is it hyperactivates a region of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is some of that higher order processing that's needed when we process memories. And all that goes offline during trauma because we're so busy trying to survive and protect ourselves. And so when the, when that part of the brain becomes hyperactive and the amygdala goes down, it allows this trauma material to surface and to get processed like it should have initially at the time of the trauma if you weren't so terrified. And then it allows this stuff to actually eventually get stored in the brain like a normal memory. It doesn't create amnesia. The person still remembers the trauma, but this previously fragmented, emotionally charged information that was improperly stored in the brain has now been released and processed, language has been assigned to it, and it's stored in the frontal lobes of the brain more like a normal memory so that it no longer has that ability to impinge on consciousness and with flashbacks and intrusive memories and nightmares. Uh, so that is what I think makes MDMA so well suited for doing the trauma work. Um, ketamine, I think, is one that we're probably, as these other, hopefully MDMA and psilocybin come online and become accepted and approved, ketamine, I think, is going to have less and less of a role, I think, but I think it's always, currently right now, they're using it in some uh, progressive ERs to try to treat acute suicidality, and they're able to give people ketamine doses in the ER, and they're able to go home and then see their therapist the next day rather than having to go to the hospital, and so I, I foresee future needs or future uh, uh, future value in ketamine to help with uh, acute suicidality, um, treatment resistant depression, things like that. Psilocybin, I think, is going to have the widest utility potentially of any of these medications. I think some of the ways it behaves in the brain, um, it can be used for trauma work quite effectively, but uh, unlike MDMA, it doesn't shut down the amygdala. So people are going to have to have a really safe positive trusting relationship with the therapist they're working with and to be able to have some skills for regulating the emotions that are come up during that trauma work but 
uh, psilocybin, because of the way it works in the brain, I think it's going to have wide utility potentially on lots of different issues. So I see psilocybin being the one that's going to probably have the most uh, uses eventually once we learn how to continue to learn how to use it responsibly and safely. And then I think MDMA, its role is going to be in treating PTSD and trauma and also helping with uh, interpersonal communication issues like marriage counseling, things like that. Well, that's a good one because anybody who's done marriage counseling, that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> so I also think that it, it it should be said that one of the concerns with, with trauma, too, is the idea that we can misremember, that mm-hmm. we put pieces together and, and we don't fully remember the experience because, like you said, you know, we kind of go offline. We're in mm-hmm. fight or flight. And so... What I think where psychedelic assisted therapy can really help too is that it helps you to process and put that together so that there isn't that potential of, like you said, it cuts down on the nightmares, cuts down on a lot of the repercussions, but you actually can bring it up and then process it more and make a make bigger headway than we've been mm-hmm. able to make with trauma in the past. Mm-hmm. But um, Dr. Raymond Turpin, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you. I'm not sure that I ever would have believed it was possible in a 30 minute podcast to do due diligence the way that you just did. So hats off to you, because mm-hmm. that was amazing at giving us just some really sound information on psychedelic assisted therapy. So if people were to have a question or they were wanting to email you or um, get more information. Is that an option? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could go uh, to our website. It's www.pearlpsychedelicinstitute.org. Um, that's got a lot of information on what we're up to, blogs, our training page. Um, and then if people have a question from this that they want to uh, reach me, I would say just send me an email. It's rturpin, T-U-R-P-I-N, at pearlpsychedelicinstitute.org. And I will do my best to get around to that. Um, but uh, and people that are interested in accessing any of our trainings, like the experiential weekend that you and I were talking about, um, they can send an email to info at pearlpsychedelicinstitute.org. And if you even send a question to info, uh, it'll get routed to me eventually. But yes, I'd be willing to answer questions if anybody had any. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks to all of you who are listening to Strong Mind, Strong Body. I really appreciate your insights and your information and your feedback. So let me know if there's ever some an episode or something that you want to hear more about. But thank you, Dr. Turpin, for coming on. Thank you for doing such an amazing job. And we will see you all next week. 